As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and we will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in it. And turn our eyes from looking at worthless things, and give us life in your ways. Confirm to your servants your promise that you may be feared. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 6. That's on page 1070 of many of our pew Bibles. Mark is the second book of the New Testament between Matthew and Luke. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad to have you here this morning. We've been considering a series through the book of Mark in our morning sermons, and we've come to Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14, beginning at verse 14 and reading through verse 29. That's what we want to consider together as our text, but to remind us a little bit about the context in which this passage comes, I want to back up and begin our reading at verse 12. So John, uh, John Mark chapter 6, uh, beginning our reading at verse 12, and let's read through verse 29, and let's pay careful attention. For this is God's own word. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said he is John John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. He vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter And gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body 
and laid it in a tomb. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we have not talked about John the Baptist in a while on our seri- in our series through the book of Mark. He was introduced to us in chapter 1, and the, the nature of his ministry was begun there. Uh, he ministered, he proclaimed a baptism for repentance. He told people that I baptize with water, but one who is coming after me who will baptize with spirit and fire, he's greater than I, and I'm not even fit to tie his shoes. And Mark tells us that after John was arrested, Jesus began his ministry. And that was the last thing, really, that we've heard about John the Baptist. Uh, last we knew, he was arrested. Um, and as this passage begins, as Mark is telling the story of the impact of Jesus' mission in the world, um, he tells us that some people were saying, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And you might imagine Mark's original readers, as they're hearing this story and as they're maybe having it read to them out loud, as probably was the first way this came, someone might say, now wait a minute, when did John the Baptist die? Last we heard, he was arrested. Now you're telling us he's dead. And then as Herod hears about the ministry of Jesus and his disciples, he says, John whom I beheaded has been raised from the dead. And you can imagine those early readers saying, wait a minute, there's a lot of this story I don't know. When was he arrested? When did he die? When was he beheaded? What all happened there? And John is taking this opportunity to tell us about what happened to John the Baptist. This is something of a flashback, a history of what happened with John the Baptist. And so Mark tells us the story, supplies those details that would have been of interest to the readers who are reading. Um, He spends more time talking about the end of John than he does talking about John's whole ministry at the beginning of the gospel. Uh, This is an important story. This is the important story of John's final work as the forerunner of Christ and how he maintained his witness faithful to the end. Um, And so we want to think about this story of how John faithfully finished the work that God had set for him and how he entered the church triumphant in glory as a faithful witness of the Lord and of his work. And so we want to think about this true story as it begins with these worldly explanations, as people try to explain the things they're seeing and hearing in the missions of Jesus and his disciples. So we want to first start with those worldly explanations that leads us into the story of the worthless opponents who took the life of John the Baptist. So we want to move there, and then we want to think finally about John as a worthy witness of the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so that's how we want to think about this passage together this morning. First, the worldly explanations that are given, the worthless opponents who took John's life, and the worthy witness that John was to the Lord and his kingdom. Uh, There are worldly explanations that need to be made because the impact of Jesus' ministry and mission is being felt. We talked about that last time, how Jesus had sent his disciples out two by two to preach the the message of repentance, to work the power of the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God is being proclaimed all over Galilee. People are hearing about it, hearing about the message that's being preached, hearing about the wonderful power that's being performed now, not just by Jesus, but by these pairs of witnesses that have gone out. And this mission and work is being seen all over Galilee, and it's being talked about. 
I remember wherever we've seen Jesus preaching, wherever we've seen Jesus' power like this, what have we seen over and over again? People saying, what is this authority? Who is this who's doing that? And so it's only natural as those questions arise, who is this, by what power is he doing this, that people are coming up with their own explanations. Who is this Jesus? What is this mission that he's doing? Um, and, and Mark tells us there were three sort of popular explanations being given at the time. The first explanation people are offering is that he's John the Baptist risen from the dead. That he's John the Baptist come back to do works of power. Uh, in the Jewish thinking of that time, resurrection was often a prelude to judgment. Um, the people were raised up to then bring the judgment of God down. And so there was a certain terror associated with someone who had been raised from the dead to work in power. You remember that John, the, God, the apostle John tells us that John the Baptist worked no works of power. That was not his ministry. And so now that people hear about this holy, righteous man preaching repentance, preaching these same kinds of things, but now doing work of power, some people who clearly didn't understand the relationship between John and Jesus are now going around saying, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Of course, then other people came and said, well, no, this is not John the Baptist raised from the dead. Jesus and John knew one another. John baptized Jesus. They're they're two separate people. They're different people. But perhaps what we can explain all of this miraculous work, this authority, maybe we can explain explain it in the way that Malachi explained it. That before the coming of the kingdom, Elijah would come. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord, would come. Elijah would come. That was the prophecy of Malachi that really ends the revelation of God until John the Baptist comes on the scene. Hundreds of years later, what did Malachi say at the end of his prophecy? Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And people are going around saying, this must be the prelude ministry. Jesus must be that Elijah that Malachi told us to look for, who has come and working in power. And then other people were saying, well, I don't think he's that, that promised Elijah, but he is certainly like one of the prophets from the Old Testament. This is another prophet like of old who speaks with authority. And so people are talking about who this might be. And and Galilee is filled with this conversation of who this might be. And it comes all the way up to the head of the region of Galilee, to the top top dog in the government, who at the time was King Herod. Now, boys and girls, this is not the King Herod who was alive at Jesus when Jesus was born. This is not the King Herod that sent to have all the children of Bethlehem destroyed. This is that Herod's son. Uh, This is one of the things that history doesn't do to help us. Everybody's named Herod. Um, So it's sort of like Pharaoh or Caesar or, um, you know, after Constantine. Everyone is some kind of Constantine. So it's not very helpful when we're trying to study history. So this is not the Herod the Great, as he was known, uh, who was alive during Jesus' birth. This is his son. It is sometimes called Herod Antipas. And he was made the sort of ruler of Galilee. So it's not surprising he had his capital city in Tiberias, which is right on the Sea of Galilee. It's not surprising that when all of this is being talked about, he's hearing about it, uh, who this might be. And it's, as these rumors come, there's no surprise that one rumor in particular sticks in his mind. 
right? Because when people say, this is John the Baptist raised from the dead, what does he say to himself? I'm the one who killed him. If he's coming back from the dead, who is he coming for? Right, that, you can see, you can hear something of the fear in what he says in verse 16. Um, when, he, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He's the one responsible for the death of John the Baptist. He's the one responsible for his execution. And this seems to be some kind of superstitious fear that John the Baptist has come back to haunt him. Um, and Mark uses this, this story, this time, uh, to talk about that, to talk about how it came about that King Herod beheaded John the Baptist. Uh, Mark refers to him as the king, uh, King Herod. That was not a title that the Romans had granted him. That was kind of the title he took on in Galilee, but it was not one that was given him by the Romans. You remember, the Romans are in charge of everything. So they're the ones that allowed him to be uh, the Tetrarch of Galilee, they called it. He was not really the king except by just common usage. And there's a chance here that Mark writes it with a kind of particular purpose because those who would have read about it in Rome um, would have remembered what happened to Herod. And so I'll fill you in on the rest of the story later. Um, But he was styled himself the king of the region. Um, And he is the one responsible for beheading John the Baptist. And this becomes the occasion for Mark to tell us the story of how these worthless opponents destroyed this wonderful servant of God. These worthless opponents who stood against him, the one we've already sort of introduced is Herod. He is a weak king. We see the weakness of his character and his conduct throughout this story. And Mark is telling us exactly the kind of person that the historians tell us about. Um, Mark confirms everything historians said about all of the figures in this story. Um, one, one German scholar writing about Herod Antipas here said, the prince of Galilee is not a lion but a fox. And not even that. He is cowardly and lazy, suspicious and superstitious, indecisive and undecided, always passive, always pushed. That sounds a little better in German, but I don't speak German and neither do you, but um, it sounds a lot more condemnatory to me in German. Um, but that was a historian said that's how he was known. He was, had a certain amount of cunning. You don't get to be in charge with having a certain amount of cunning, but he never had the real power of making decisions. He was always pushed by people. He was always passive in things. He was kind of superstitious Um, And we see all of that being confirmed in how Mark describes him to us, don't we? He lives in fear. He was afraid of John the Baptist in death. He's afraid of John the Baptist in life. Uh, We're told that he arrested John the Baptist because John the Baptist was going around publicly preaching that his marriage was adulterous. He did what a lot of people did at the time, putting away wives, marrying someone else. And so he'd married the daughter of a king. He divorced her so he could marry Herodias. She divorced her husband so she could marry, marry Herod. But the man she divorced was Herod's half-brother, Philip. And under Jewish law, that was a tremendously adulterous thing to do. It was a scandalous thing to do. 
And Herod was already filled with scandalous activity. He decided, I'm going to build my capital in Tiberias. Tiberias happened to be a big Jewish cemetery. And so he built his palace right on top of the cemetery, which ingratiated him to all the people. But also by a Gentile moving there, he kind of made the whole place unclean. So a lot of people who had been living there said, we can't live here if he's going to be here. So he was already very insensitive to the people. And so now he does this marriage that is an absolute scandal among the people. And John the Baptist has the courage not only to preach against his sin, but to preach against his sin to him. Right? It's one thing to preach against sin generally to people that you may never see. Right? If I stand here and I thundered against you know, President Trump or President Biden or something, I would think to myself, they'll never really hear this. Uh, it would be another thing to meet one of them face to face and say, you know what? This is how you need to change your life. That's a lot more courage, right? To preach it to them. And that's apparently what John the Baptist did. He had some opportunity when Herod came to hear him to say, what you're doing is not right. You need to do what everyone else here needs to do. You need to repent of your sin. You need to stop doing what you're doing. And Herod basically said, I can't have this. I can't have this guy going around preaching about me like this. He's going to stir up the people against me. But he's too afraid to put him to death. Herod was also educated in Jewish law. He knew Jewish customs. He, as ruler of Galilee, had to understand his people. And he knew that John was a righteous and a holy man. And so you can see how he's afraid of him politically. He doesn't want him out preaching these things. But he's also afraid of him personally. He doesn't want to be responsible for putting a righteous man to death. There's part of him that wants to kill him. There's another part of him that's too afraid to kill him. And we see this kind of indecision in the way he listens to John's preaching. Right? We're told Herod would keep going to hear John. That's a strange thing, isn't it? To keep going to someone who's saying, hey, guess what? You need to knock off what you're doing. And to come in as a king, I don't imagine kings hear that too often from people. That he would come in and see John and John would say, you need to repent, the Lord's coming. And you're an adulterer, stop it. Put away your adultery. And it seems like Herod just had no idea what he was saying. Greatly perplexed has this idea, I'm totally confused and it's making me anxious. So he would go and listen and be completely confused and anxious. But what else does Mark tell us? He always heard him gladly. He liked it. He liked going and listening to John. There was something about hearing about the day of the Lord that's coming and this one that's coming after him. There's something about his message that he loved to listen to, but that he was unwilling to hear. And that can be a danger when it comes to preaching for all of us, isn't it? That we can like to hear it, but we don't like to do what we're being told to do. Um, we like to hear those, those parts of the sermon that don't really call us to do anything. Or that talk about other people. Right? I would never get in trouble in the pulpit here by haranguing about other people who aren't in the room. Um, or people that we all disagree with already. Um, what do we struggle and squirm under when we hear something that touches on us personally? 
Um, and Herod is a warning to us of people who gladly hear but won't listen. Or gladly listen but won't really hear. He loved to hear him, but he wouldn't do what he told him to do. To put away his sin in light of the fact that the Lord was coming. He was a man motivated by fear. Um, And he shows that in the party. When he loves playing the big man, Herod apparently was known for throwing lavish parties. That was one of his claims to fame, is he could throw a really good party. And he does one for his birthday. And then he has entertainers entertain him, and he plays the big man in the party. I'm going to make this big, you know, grand gesture. And then when he's asked for John the Baptist's head... He's totally sorry. He's deeply sorry. It's the same word Mark will use later to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's grieved in his soul. But he's afraid of what it'll look like before his friends and the big people of the region if he says no. He was afraid of John personally. He was afraid of John politically. He was afraid of the people around him. He was a weak king. And he let himself be pushed into doing something he knew he shouldn't do. And he was pushed into it by the wicked women who were around him. A wicked queen and a wicked princess who pushed him to do these things. The worthless opponents here are a weak king and these wicked women that we're introduced to in the story. There is Herodias, his wife, the one who put off her husband to marry up to marry Herod. Um, And again, Mark's statements about her confirm everything we know in history about her. Uh, One historian described her as an opportunist, a wily schemer, a woman motivated by deep-seated jealousies and over-vaulting ambitions, a veritable Lady Macbeth. Uh, She was a granddaughter of Herod the Great, who murdered the children in Bethlehem. And she seems to have learned something from her grandfather. Because when she hears John the Baptist preach against her, she wants someone to put him to death. Um, She thinks he should just be put to death. And she'd have had it done if Herod wasn't protecting him. Herod was the one keeping him safe. But we can see that she's been nourishing this grudge. She's been looking for an opportunity to have him killed. And she finally finds the opportunity when her daughter is sort of written a blank check and she says, all right, now's my chance. He said, you can ask for anything, go ask for the head of John the Baptist. The whole thing here is that she's been scheming and nourishing this grudge, cherishing murder in her heart and looking for the opportunity to destroy him. And her daughter, Salome, is not just a a passive participant in this. She does whatever her mother tells her to do, but she's not just simply being pushed by her mother. We see something in that in what she adds to the request she makes and how she makes it. I want you to give me at once. There's a certain arrogance to speaking to a king that way, but saying, I want you to give me at once his head on a platter. That's still an expression we use to this day. His head on a platter. People will still say that. It comes from John the Baptist. And it's a kind of sick joke relating to the feast. Um, I want another dish served at this birthday dinner. And the dish I want is John's head on a platter. It shows the malice that's in her heart as well. 
and Herod doesn't want to do it, but this weak king, pushed by this wicked queen to do it, uh, ends up doing it. He has John beheaded in the prison, um, and the head is brought to the girl, and she brings it to her mother. Why is this story here? Um, maybe you're thinking at this point, why, why, are we, why are we spending all this time thinking about this? You know, Mark has been very concise in how he's told the stories so far. So for him to spend this time on it shows that he thought it was important, and so we should think it's important. And what is Mark trying to bring to our mind in all of this? Well, it kind of started at the beginning of the text when someone said, he is Elijah. It brings Elijah to mind. It brings Elijah to mind, it should just because Elijah's name came up in the passage, but also of what we know now that Jesus said, John the Baptist was Elijah, come back. Jesus will later make it very clear, John the Baptist is the Elijah that Malachi was saying to look for. He's the one who came before the awesome day of the Lord. He's the forerunner who goes before the Lord. And in many ways, this is a parallel to the Elijah story. What was Elijah's Big problem in the Old Testament. It was King Ahab. And who was King Ahab? He was a weak king who was constantly being pushed by a wicked queen, Queen Jezebel. And what were they out to do? To silence Elijah, to put Elijah to death. I think it's meant to bring that picture back And to say, here is this John the Baptist, this really Old Testament figure who's entering into the same kind of experience that Elijah experienced. The the faithful servant of God pressed by the weak king and the wicked woman. It's meant to make us think of that. And as we reflect on that reality, we, we might be tempted to say, But things worked out in the end for Elijah. What happened to King Ahab? He was killed in battle. God worked it so that some random guy just fired an arrow in the air and it went right between the king's armor and killed him. God took him down. Remember Queen Jezebel was up in her palace when Jehu came to to find her and said, who is on my side? And a couple of her servants said, we are, and threw her out of a window. And she met a horrible end. And what happened to Elijah, the prophet that they wanted to kill over and over again? He never died. The Lord sent a whirlwind and chariots and horsemen of fire and carried him to glory. It's meant to bring those associations to mind and then to say, why does John die like John dies? Here is the one who's been faithful, faithful even in the face of those he's preaching against. He has not shied away from preaching his message of repentance. He's preached it to ordinary people. He's preached it to kings and queens. And even when he's in prison so he can't preach publicly, whenever he gets the opportunity apparently to speak to a congregation of one in King Herod, he still says the same thing. He's a faithful witness. So why does this happen to him? Even if we know that bad things happened to Herod and Herodias, 
following this story. It doesn't change the fact that bad things happened to John the Baptist. Eventually, Herodias would push Herod too far. Her brother Agrippa had been made king, and it bothered her that he was a king and her husband wasn't, so she kept nagging him to say, you need to go to Rome and get them to make you a king, like, like my brother. And he kept saying, no, I don't want to do that, I don't want to do that. And she finally pushed him into doing it. And when he did, King Agrippa said, well, here's my chance to eliminate a rival. And he sent a message ahead of him to Rome and said, you might want to ask him why he's building up such a big army at home. He might be threatening Caesar. And so when he arrived, hoping to just be made king, he faced a lot of questions. Why are you keeping such a big army at home? What's your plan for your big army? And Herod, being not a real clever guy, didn't have a good answer for that question. And so the Romans stripped him of his titles, stripped him of his land, stripped him of his money, and sent him banished to Gaul. And they said to Herodias, you know, you're the sister of King Agrippa, so we're willing to be kinder to you. And in her arrogance, she said, I go where my husband goes. And they said, well, then you can go without your titles and without your land and without your money too. And they were both stripped of everything and never came back to Galilee. Now, part of us that likes justice say, good. But we're still back to John the Baptist. What about him? What are we to make of his fate? Because he is held up to us as a worthy witness. That's why we titled our, our sermon this morning, John the Martyr. Martyr is just a word that means witness, but through time it's come to mean someone who dies and bears witness by their death. That's what John did. He was faithful. He was faithful unto death, and he died a gruesome death for what he had done. And it's a reason for sorrow because John is really the last Old Testament figure. I know he's a New Testament character, but he's really the last of the Old Testament figures. And so what, what happens to the last of the Old Testament figures? He's faithful, he's righteous, he's holy, and he's killed. It's a sad commentary on the way the Old Testament comes to an end. And it's a sobering reminder as Calvin says, that the Lord sometimes gives up his people to the pride of wicked men till he at length makes it evident that their blood is precious in his sight. Um, we don't know why John's fate was so much worse than Elijah's fate. But we need to remember that the last word about John the Baptist is not his cruel death, but his caring burial. When the worthless opponents are done with him, they have no more use for him. Once he's executed, they couldn't care less about John. Their problem is over. Uh, their desire is met. He's now out of the way. But the last message is not his death, but his burial. He's of no more interest to his opponents, but he's still of interest to his disciples who come for his body and bury him in a tomb. Again, Calvin is helpful in reflecting on why, why do we have stories of burial in the Bible? Why is that important? He says, though the honor of burial is of no importance to the dead, yet it is the will of the Lord that we should observe this ceremony as a token of the last resurrection. 
Just as this passage began with rumors about Elijah that should bring Elijah to our mind, this passage also began with rumors of resurrection. This is John raised. Now we know they were only rumors. John is still dead and buried. But it puts resurrection on our mind. It also brings to mind the reminder that John's mission was to be a forerunner. That he was to decrease, and why? So that Christ might increase. And there's another passion narrative coming in the book of Mark. Where another holy and righteous and faithful man who is faithful unto death is put to a cruel and terrible death. A death on the cross. And he dies faithful unto death. And he will be buried by friends. Sadly, his disciples will be too afraid to take care of his body. But it will be taken care of by Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. And he too will be put in a grave. And three days later, he will rise from the dead. Not in rumor, but in reality. He will triumph over death. And be the first fruits of a resurrection that's coming. That promises that all of those who serve the Lord. Even those who have to be faithful unto death. And witness to the Lord in their death. Will be raised with him. Everyone might have looked around and thought. Where is the justice of God. That this holy and righteous man is put to this kind of death. But there's a day coming when the Lord will come again in glory. And he will raise all of those who are his. And in that day we will see that John's blood was precious in his sight. And that all those who have been faithful unto death and have borne witness to the Lord by their death will be shown to be precious in his sight. There's a great day of resurrection coming. And that's what the tomb should remind all Christians. It is not the end. And histories like this are to remind us to look to that life and not this life. I want to end with, with two things. The first is a quotation from J.C. Ryle because he beautifully reflects on this history of John the Baptist and tells us what we are to make of it. So I'll end with this and then with a, a brief quote from our Lord. But J.C. Ryle says, Histories like this are meant to remind us that the true Christian's best things are yet to come. His rest his crown, his wages, his reward are all on the other side of the grave. Here in this world, he must walk by faith and not by sight. And if he looks for the praise of man, he will be disappointed. Here in this life, he must sow and labor and fight and endure persecution. And if he expects a great earthly reward, he expects what he will not find. But this life is not all. There is to be a day of retribution. There is a glorious harvest yet to come. Heaven will make amends for all. Eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard the glorious things that God has laid up for all that love him. The value of real religion is not to be measured by the things seen but the things unseen. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding 
and eternal weight of glory. If you ask John now, he'd say it was worth it because of the promise of Jesus Christ that he has seen made good for himself. As the Lord said in Revelation 20, 10 and 11, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Heaven will make amends for all. May we serve him faithfully unto death as worthy witnesses of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this story. It is is a grim story where John is not front and foremost. He is a victim of what happens to him. We thank you for his faithfulness. We thank you for his witness unto death as a forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we struggle to think about his end, and it is a grim thing to think about. But we thank you for the hope of glory that's held out to us in Jesus Christ. The John who always faithfully proclaimed, repent for the king is coming, has been proven true. The king has come and like so many of his servants, he's died a cruel and horrible death on the cross. And yet he rose from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He's sitting at your right hand alive, flesh and blood, even now. And he testifies to us that Flesh and blood can inherit the kingdom of heaven, raised and resurrected in glory like our heavenly Father has made in Jesus Christ. And we know that we will one day be made like Christ, where this flesh and blood will be perfected. We will be raised spiritual bodies. We will ascend to heaven in glory. And we thank you to know that despite the cruel way in which John ended his life, he has been with the Lord Jesus Christ all these days. Enjoying the glory of heaven in his soul and waiting for that great day of resurrection. There were rumors that John was raised, but one day he will be raised in reality by the power of Christ. And all those who have died in faith in him will see before the world that his blood is precious in their sight. Lord, we thank you for this promise. We don't know what the world holds for us, whether we will have an easy path in this world or a difficult one, but we know that wherever it runs, the Lord goes with us and that heaven will make amends for all. May we fix our eyes on that truth and so may he find us faithful when he comes and hear us for we pray in his name, amen.